everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee. Thank you so much for joining us. And today our honored guest is Dr. Apila Colorado joining us from Hawaii. Before I get into her formal introduction, I'll just let everybody know that although we have people joining from around the world in the Banyan Books community, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound in Kitsilano and Vancouver is on the traditional and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. That includes the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Now, Banyan Books, as many of you know, is in our 50th anniversary year. It's Banyan's 50th birthday as Canada's spiritual and healing resource. So uh, it's a big, big marker. Uh, please support independent bookstores. You can make your purchases at our website, banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com. Or you can make your order by phone. You can find the phone number on the website. Or you can go in in person seven days a week. And uh, all of your purchases at Banyan Books help to support all these amazing free events and programs such as this one this evening. Okay, our guest this evening, Dr. Apila Colorado of Oneida Gaul Ancestry is a traditional cultural practitioner and indigenous scientist who has dedicated her life to bridging dialogue between Western thought and indigenous worldview. As a Ford Fellow, Dr. Colorado studied for her doctorate at both Harvard and Brandeis universities, receiving her PhD from Brandeis in social policy. In 1989, she founded the Worldwide Indigenous Science Network in order to foster the revitalization, growth and worldwide exchange of traditional knowledge and to safeguard the lives and work of the world's endangered traditional practitioners. In 1997, Dr. Colorado was one of 12 women chosen from 52 countries by the State of the World Forum to be honored for her role as a woman leader. She created the first doctoral program in traditional knowledge at the California Institute of Integral Studies. For 20 years, she directed the Indigenous Mind Program, which led students into ways of exploring their ancestral and earth-based holistic consciousness within a Western academic framework. She continues this work offering workshops in the ancestral remembrance process. Her new book released by Hay House in July, 2021 is titled, Woman Between the Worlds, A Call to Your Ancestral and Indigenous Wisdom, a really fantastic book. In this book, Apila Colorado shares her lifelong journey of connecting with the essence of indigenous spirituality and culture. From China to Alaska, Benin to France, Apila recounts her passionate work to communicate, conserve, and celebrate sacred indigenous ways, all while reawakening to the wisdom of her Native American and French Gaul ancestors and reclaiming her own truth, healing, and story. Her website is wism.org. Banyan Books community, please join me in a warm welcome for Dr. Apila Colorado. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Ross. It's good to be here. And I'll invite you to, to do our opening prayer. Thank you. No, thank you. 
in the smoke of the fire, in the warmth of the flame, in the purity of the cedar. Around a virtual fire we assemble, as in days of old, each of us on this call represents a line from the earth, from the creator, an ancestry through which the remembrance and the renewal flows and awaits now. In our conversation, in our sharing with each other in this virtual format, may the words we speak be true from the heart mind that when we leave this circle, we come away enriched, renewed, and reconnected in that way that only you ancestors can help us to do and be so that the humanity of this planet will heal and the planet itself can heal because of it. Um, oh, I know uh, all my relations. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell us about the question, who are you, that indigenous people in the Americas have been asking the European settlers or colonizers since their arrival? And how did this question relate to your life's journey? Well, you can find the, find it out in the book. Yes. <laughs> you can read the book. <laughs> um, but the question of who are you, it was a big question in, in my childhood when racial divides were really stark. And where I grew up, there were two things you could be. You could be Indian or you could be white. And there was there was very little communication between the two. So in the case of my own family, um, they decided that they were going to do their best to escape the poverty and the oppression of being American Indian and did everything to assimilate. Um, but I was always different. And my grandfather who was cultural, uh, a cultural person, he took me under his wing. He was, I, I say in the book, and it was actually the truth. I was his favorite grandchild. And, and that, that was true, not because he picked me, but because there was a love between us from the moment probably of my birth. And that love was not only between us, but what he transmitted to me and what I lived in the North Woods was the love of the forest, the love of the streams, the bear, the wolf, all of nature and the stars overhead at night, the wind through the pine trees, lightning and thunderstorms on Birch Lake, all of that through his love and the way that he loved me brought me into this intense, intense sense of um, community and of, I would say now, indigenous mind or indigenous consciousness. Your, your life journey and 
your your life work are really about this bringing together or I shouldn't say necessarily bringing together, but finding a way for the indigenous mind and the Western thought to, to come into some kind of harmony. Can you give us a little bit of an idea what that, what that means or what that might look like? Well, uh, for me, the way it was, is I saw there was a lot of drinking and with the drinking came violence in my family as I was a child growing up. And I would hear that as the drinking went on, eventually there would, there would come to a point where people would start talking about being Indian. And, and somehow I got the idea that that was, that was the reason why people were drinking. But the drinking was so um, severe and so in, scary and intense that it also showed me that there was some kind of really big power there because I thought if these adults, these grown-ups that I love, like if that Indianness could cause that, there must be something to it, right? Um, so I decided that I was going to find out what that was. And that's the journey that I'm that I'm relating. Um, but it, and it wasn't even, it, it was just in me. I was just kind of born that way between the worlds from when my grandfather took me out under the lunar eclipse when I was just a child. Um, from that, maybe that excited it in me, spiritually excited in me. But there was just this determination to get to the bottom of this identity question. So I started out saying to who am I? I decided that I was going to be the person in my family to answer it. And I was convinced that if I could answer it, I would bring healing to my family and to my community. What, what challenges, I mean, you were the first person in your family to attend university. And I just want to, first of all, say to everybody, this book is really a, a beautiful book. I really enjoyed it. And so I, I really highly recommend everybody read this story. It's like this mysterious unraveling the whole thing as you go through it. And we're only going to touch little pieces, but this book, there's a lot to unpack. Um, so you were, you were the first person in your family to go to university. What challenges did you face as an Indian American woman or Native American woman uh, at that time? going to university and then getting out um, into the into the world? It was really, um, it, it was, it was frightening for me. I was the only American Indian in any class in a place where there were a lot of Indians living, but I was the only one. And I didn't think quite the same. And I knew I didn't look, if you look at me, you can see I'm, half and half, right? But then I would be with 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 non-native, I'll say non-native people. And eventually they would always ask, like, excuse me, like, what nationality are you? And then um <laughs> when I was with Native American people too, I would I could feel later on in life when I would be in ceremonies, I would be the only mixed blood person in the room. And I could feel I brought discomfort to them because I was, you know, I was presenting like the perpetrator. Here I am, you know, 
But when I got like teenage and late years, without really having a strong grounding in my Native American culture or the Gaul French side, I was really at risk for suicide. It was really probably the most the most vulnerable time uh, of my of my life. So I the the setting was absolutely perfect for me to to choose to find out what it meant to be in two worlds to find out what was the what was the lived meaning of what my grandfather did when he took me out under the full lunar eclipse what was the mystery of that when i was writing this book it makes me really happy what you said ross because the whole time I was writing it, it's like I had some teachings from elders going through my head. Like the first thing is, as a Native American, there are there are no teachers. The best connection is the direct connection between us and life. And elders will always say, like, don't put your faith or trust in another human being as your spiritual leader, because another person can lead you wrong but you can trust what the creator creatress says through nature. Because for example, a tree, it doesn't lie when it has no leaves, right? It has them or it doesn't, that's it. So there are indigenous ancestors and that's all of us on this call. If we own it and claim it and renew it, saw that there was a wisdom in understanding the mystery of life through its unfolding in in nature. So when I set about to write the book, I was thinking, oh boy, I have to put myself in it, check, right? And it's supposed to be that what I'm doing is helpful to someone else. Um, It's supposed to include others when I do it, when I'm doing it. And, um, And it's supposed to be prayerful So the whole time I was writing it, and it took eight years, and mind you, half of a book, half of what I wrote was chucked, right? (laughs) Because when it hits the editor, this won't last, we only got so many words, that's going, oh no, that was months, right? So as as I was writing it, truly, like I prayed and prayed and prayed every day, every night, pray, 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 that something in the book that it would be a ceremony of renewal for the reader in some way, because that's what elders gave me. They never told me do this, do that, but just like my grandfather's love and words, it gave a way, it, it showed a path. And I was told by, by elders that while we don't, we don't have teachers, there's no like priesthood or something above us, and nobody below us either, as I said, but we do have something we can do for each other. And the something we can do is we can share our stories with each other. And in sharing our stories, there's two things of value. One, that in the story I've shared with you now, in the book, maybe it will help you avoid making some mistake or hurting yourself in some way. And the second thing it might do is it might save you some time on your journey of renewal and rediscovery and living life in a good way. 
that answer the question? Absolutely. It's interesting to me that, that there's a teaching of, of sort of um, uh, not putting anybody above you, and yet there is a deep uh, respect in Indigenous cultures for elders and, and healers. How do, we, how do we sort of uh, reconcile those two? Because there's obviously a reason for that, although it doesn't seem like the elder would be asking for that specifically. Mm. What makes the difference, Ross, is that we're related. Mm. Right? If it's your auntie that's your healer or your cousin or your uncle, there, it, isn't, um, it isn't like what we do in the Western world where we put those people like on a pedestal we're in the Western world, we're all separated from each other. That's the outcome of almost 2000 years. Well, really 600 years of science, analytical, rational science, but it started before then too. the separation between ourselves and nature. And, and if we're speaking English, but most modern languages also reinforce the the separations. So in the Western world, um, our, our specialists are considered to be above us. But in the native world, where there's a deep, deep love for the healer, you also know about that healer's life. Like, you know that when this person was young, they were really a scoundrel and they did this or they did that or whatever. So even if you're tempt, even if you'd be tempted out of gratitude for healing or something, you might be tempted to put that person up here. You don't really do it because, just excuse me, kill my man a Zoom call. <laughs> my husband just popping in. Hello. We have a, we have a Hawaiian ceremony, and when this when this uh, call is over, he's oh. organizing for an Ava ceremony, and he's the carver artist. I should have brought him in. Yeah. The book come alive. <laughs> anyway, where were we? You were just finishing saying, you know, for the healer, oh, yeah, even if even if we're really grateful to the healer for a healing or something. And you have so much love for the healers too. I mean, the love between my grandfather and I, it was really the way with the way it has played out in my lives, my life. Like I never would have imagined that I would have continued doing the practices of that love all my life. Um, starting in my 20s, I began to notice how impoverished our, our healers, our surviving healers and cultural practitioners often were. I mean, desperate conditions because communities couldn't support them or were being actively, um, actively pressured to not support them by through missionization and through um, uh, residential school, boarding school, all those different ways that the Western mind and Western world was imposing separation left the number of, of healers, cultural practitioners greatly reduced. And I noticed that uh, even, as a, even as a child. And as I grew up, I wanted to help these people. So for, from, my, from my 20s, all the way up through my late 40s and even early 50s, I did all kinds of things to help cultural practitioners. But I have to tell you that doing it, like one of the most basic things we needed was money. Well, how can you raise money when they would say 
Like you can't talk about it and you can't take pictures. Now that's all changed. And most of them, most, most of them within certain parameters permit that, but then they didn't. Um, but in a way, it didn't matter if it had to be, well, it's, you know, Ross, that Native American spirituality was against the law that, uh, through the potlatch laws in Canada and in the U.S. through administrative fiat and so forth. In the U.S. until 1978, and it happened I was a student board member to the group that penned the law that restored the right under the U.S. Constitution and government to practice American Indian spirituality. Um, before that time, if, just, just imagine this for a second. Before that time, the cedar that I burnt, we couldn't even do that. The Navajos weren't allowed to weave their rugs. I mean, that's how just crazy it was, right? And destructive. So when I saw that these healers were that, that I had such love for were in deep trouble. I said, I'm going to do something about that. And the other thing about, I was doing something for myself too, because being with them steadied me and it's, it started to awaken in me to, to peel back the layers of pain, hurt, suppression, that intergenerational alcoholism, all the things that happened started peel those layers back so I could come to the essence of my purpose here on earth and to answer that question, who am I? Yeah. Through your journey, uh, you encounter so many different elders and healers, um, but you also saw around the world, like as you're talking about here in Canada and in the US, the suppression of traditional spirituality or indigenous spirituality and culture was prevalent everywhere in the world by uh, the sort of Western or colonial mindset. Do you have any insight as to why this is so has been so widespread? Like, do you have it? It's, it's such a big question. I know it's to a, me, it's shocking. It's a really easy question. It's an easy, easy question because okay. when people are disconnected from their land, when they're disconnected from their identity, you can disconnect them from the land. And for example, what happened in many parts of the world and then spread, the Abrahamic religions are awesome when it comes to helping other people and so forth, but they're religions that you can practice anywhere, right? And thank God there are religions you can practice if you're anywhere. But before that, the spiritual ways came from the land that your ancestors were on. And I don't, Ross, are you are you of Scottish descent? Yeah, mostly Scottish, a bit of Irish and, and English in there too, and Norwegian. So here's what happened to me in Scotland. And this was many years ago. I was like in my... 40s. I was living in Alberta, teaching there, and I went to this meeting in uh, Inverness in Scotland at a conference. And I had a time one day uh, about where we could go out on on the country, and I wanted to visit a sacred site I'd heard about called the Clava Stones. 
and it's right by the big battlefield there where the sort of the last stand of the traditional Scots was Culloden Battlefield. And that was really a sad place to be near. And then I went to the Clava Stones and the Clava Stones had like three sort of ancient beehive huts made out of stone. And two of them were fully caved in and one was partly standing. And there was a fence around it. And I came to the fence and I made an offering and I asked permission to enter the sacred land. And I explained, I said, who I am, there's Oniataaga, Oneida. And then I said French, because I didn't know about Gaul, indigenous, anything at the time. And so I was standing there praying like this with my smudge, just like I did. And I made an offering of tobacco in my mind's eye, this huge spirit showed up over me. And I started to cry because the presence was so, the recognition and the presence was so emotionally moving. And I, I was weeping and I said, what can I do for what you've just given me? And the spirit answered in my mind um, that I want I want to be remembered and I want to be free. So I would say like to, um, to people of European descent, I use the example of Scotland because, because you're here, Ross, and I can see you. But all of our ancestors, and especially for European, um, European ancestry people, there, there has been a huge theft. Like why... On my French side, didn't I know who I was indigenous-wise? Why is it okay that people all over uh, North America and U.S. and Canada, if, if I say, like, what is your tribe or who are you, like stumped for an answer, or maybe, maybe now people could say, well, I'm Celtic. But as I say in the book, for the truth to be real, it must be lived. And I want you to find it because I found out we could find it at Oneida as a people, and I found it as a person of Gaul descent. And I, and I say in the caves, like I actually go to the south of France and found indigenous people there. There's not much of the indigenosity left, but they know who they are. They have their old language. They have some sacred sites, so it's still happening. And farther back in time, I'm one of the fortunate people that gets to go to the painted caves of the south of France for ceremonies every year. So that identity, it's there. The ancestors are there. They're just waiting for us to ask them to help. I also found out for, uh, for my husband, as I watched him make his prayers when we were young people. And I heard him say something was so beautiful. And he was asking the Hawaiian spirits who went to this old sacred site. And he said, you know, I'm really sorry. That I haven't remembered you. And I can understand and you don't want to help me, but I really need you. And if you would help me, I'll never forget again, I promise. And boy, did they help. Wow. Yeah. Because of it, I live in a house now that's made traditional style. It's filled with Hawaiian images. There's 
canoes, traditional canoes we sail in, you know, because he's a carver. Yeah. So all that, I'm, I'm saying all this, like, I can feel a certain hush right now because there is a sorrow. Like American Indians, you know, we lost so much too. And there was a um, sort of a, a prejudicial belief that was self-serving. Well, American Indians, they know who they are. And, you know, always got to ax grind about something. But the fact of the matter is 400 years of history and assimilation had taken its toll. It's that way all over the world. Indigenous people have to fight or live for their indigenous mind. Um, and here's here's the reason. If you if if you're on the fence, like oh, <laughs> let me back up. Okay, so why don't we all just reclaim our? Uh, now I'm going to speak on my French side. Why don't we all just reclaim our European ancestry? Well, one reason is it's been disconnected for so long. An analytical mind tells us it's in the past. Can't do anything about that. Whole mind says it's all present, right? So if we do decide to find out who we are, there are some gargoyles at the door waiting for us. Like if you're of German descent, there's Nazi, the Nazi history in your past. If you're English, you have the British Empire, and on and on and on and on. I can tell you there is no culture, including Native American cultures, that has not been a perpetrator to somebody and a victim of somebody. So in the recovery, we have to look into the shadow because that's where the gold of our identity is. That's the gold that can save the planet, right? So those, those of us that have that desire inside to be whole, to reclaim that power of knowing and being in an indigenous way and not with blocking the analytical Western way, but holding these two often oppositional forces, not trying to wipe either out, holding it and coming to that third place. That's where the power is. So anyway, for me, it happened, which I describe in the book. I, I'm recovering from breast cancer and I'm just a couple of months, if even that, out of radiation. And I was like a little skeleton and really weak. And friends of mine who are MDs and African-American had organized a big ceremony in Benin, in Senegal, and then Benin, West Africa. And they wanted me to come and reassured me that if anything happened, I would be well cared for because there were nothing but doctors <laughs> around me in addition to traditional African healers. So there I was. And one day in the conference, we had a side trip to a place called Guri Island. And this is an island where, um, where Africans were uh, rounded up and imprisoned and sent there before shipping to the New World and the Caribbean and South America to be, and some Canada too, to be slaves, right? So when we get there, as we're approaching this island, this, the water was all blue and sparkling and the houses were different painted colors like adobe and bougainvillea fluorescent and wow, white sand beach, it looks beautiful. But as this beat up old boat overfilled with people approached, 
the sense of dread came over me. When I got out of the boat, there's little kids running around happy, trying to sell scarves and things. And then we get to the, uh, the house of slaves. But it was, it, as we get closer, the, the feeling of dread got worse and worse. And we get inside and then I see this room. They, they show us this room where girls were shackled, chained to the wall. And one room where a young woman were just taken for breeding by the slave by the slavers. Another room where a hole in the ground where recalcitrant men were thrown when they tried to resist or fight. Um, and then they took us uh, up up a tower, and the tower was the landing spot to get on the old time ships. And at the top of the tower, right where you'd step off to get on the boat, there was a window which is called the door of no return. And people were given a choice. Either you become a slave or you jump out that window to the rocks and sharks below. When I was there doing this walkthrough, I, I was also taken to the upper floor, which is very, very nice. Love, you know, appointed in a beautiful way, very comfortable life. And then I found out it was French people that did that. And bear in mind, I was near death at the time. When I heard that, I just like recoiled in horror. As a Native American, I could fully understand the impact of what Euro European invasion meant. And as a person of French descent, I also felt the horror of being um, uh, like genealogically a participant in that. I fell against the wall because I was so weak. And as I touched the wall, it seemed like I could just hear the screams of agony and torture. And I came away from there and I, I just, I, I couldn't get out because I was just a mob of people. There was no way out of this. And so, and they're all like African healers around me. So we kind of like pushed our way as a mob kind of to the exit, out and to the exit. And by this time, I was just like, filled with tears and emotion. And the main healer who was surrounded were just like shoulder to shoulder like this. They called him Mami Wata. Um, he looked over at me, he spoke no English, but shamans can do these things. He looked over at me and he stood with a smile. Hello, my sister. Ah, more the tears. If he could forgive me, I said, I can forgive me. Another thing that helped is I remembered what Virginia Satir, the late marvelous uh, social worker in the 1950s, who later in her life, late life actually, worked with American Indians around family constellation work and identity issues. And Virginia said this, I may or may not be responsible for what my ancestors did, but I am making myself responsible now. And this book, Woman Between the Worlds is me, making myself responsible now. And when you read it and listen to this call, think about it, you help me to be responsible and possibly help you to be responsible for your line too. But it isn't only sackcloth and ashes, it's also regaining our power because the only way to it is through it. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Wow. Uh, I mean, yeah, wow. Uh, 
something I something beautiful in this in this book and in your life story is the interconnections that you discover between all of the indigenous peoples and cultures around the world. And I guess your entry point for that is through your research into the petroglyphs at the base of Copper Mountain in Alaska, and then the discovery of the petroglyphs uh, on the beaches in Hawaii. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the significance of the petroglyphs, but also indigenous stories and how they interweave and bring us back to the understanding of our, our um, same origins and Oh boy, that's a lot. <laughs> Let me see how I can do it in five minutes. <laughs> if I may, just while you ponder that, I just want to let our live audience know, uh, Appeal will be taking your questions in about 10 minutes. We'll get to those. So I see there's some coming in already. Feel free to type them into the Q&A tab um, down at the bottom of your screen and we'll, we'll read out some of those questions to Appeal. Thank you. Okay, so... Well, what was your question again, Ross? The, the petroglyphs, I guess for wow. people to have a bit of an understanding of the, the connection of the petro, between the petroglyphs in Alaska and Hawaii, and then okay. also the connection right. between indigenous story. Okay. So, so you guys, the thing is, he's saying Alaska, but the fact of the matter is these petroglyphs are off the BC coast, um, but technically Alaska claims this land, right? Anyway, it's all it, but it isn't only BC, it's also off the coast, it's the Northwest coast. And it happened that I got there through a vision. It was the first time in my life I had a vision and then it came true in reality. And I knew it came and I knew it when I, I was conscious in it when it happened. So I was working on my doctoral dissertation. I got stuck for a year and a half. Oh, and um, what happened to me is I went home to Oneida for the ceremony. It was a peyote ceremony and a vision came. I saw this mountain. I saw these rocks. I'm doing this fast forward. So not doing it justice really, but within a matter of a couple of years, I ended up off the coast of BC in a little seaplane and the seaplane got socked into a squall. We popped out there was this mountain I had seen in the vision. It was, it was called Copper Mountain now. And at the base of it were all of these big boulders. And of course, I didn't know that from the seaplane, but later I found out that there were all these petroglyphs. So essentially what happened is <clears throat> as the screws are being turned in my Ivy League doctoral program to think this linear way, then the ancestors said, uh, 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 not so fast, apparently. I didn't see it at the time, I see it now. And I ended up learning my ABCs off the BC coast from the petroglyphs, the ABCs of how to think holistically. <laughs> if, you'd have, if you'd have been there, you would have laughed because I, I did, I did the, the best Western research I could do and nothing would open these petroglyphs. I can't get it. I don't understand. So I would, I, I drew them. I had them up on the walls. I dreamt about them. I talked with every elder. I pestered everybody. Like, I need to know what, I need to know what this is, what this is. But there was one that just riveted me, one in particular. 
And there were about 150 of these rocks along the tide, the tide line. Um, and, you know, when you're listening to me talking, you may take this as a peerless journey through adventures, through all these things. But even like we're just one person, I'm not even, I'm not even five foot one, right? Just a small person, right? But that didn't mean I couldn't do something or give something back to this place. So as I was there making all these notes and so forth, and I, I actually brought a medicine man, Hanson Ashley, from Navajo land to help me because I, I knew he, he was my age, but I knew he understood how to read his symbols. And then I talked with, and then we went and talked with the local elders together. And uh, so from that, I ended up going to a ceremony in Navajo land and at that ceremony, the image on the rock that had captivated me, which was, there are various names for it, like the Haidas call it Wasco, like the sea monster or sea spirit. Um, and of course, Tlingits have a different name for it. All up and down the coast, everybody knows this spirit. So that's the rock that had me captivated. And when I got into this Navajo ceremony, deep, deep, deep into ceremony, um, the ceremony, I got pulled into a vision. And in this vision, you can read about it. It's terrifying. And the thing about vision, you can't pull out of it. It has you. It's not something you dream or imagine or hope. It has you. And I'm moving through this water and then I it, deep, deep, dark water and my heart in reality, at, well, three-dimensional reality, I looked down in that ceremony, my calico shirt, I could see my heart pounding so hard the cloth was going up and down like this. I didn't know that the medicine man could see what I was, what, what, what was going on. I, I, as far as I knew, I was alone. So the thing ate me and I just blacked out. And then when I came to, it was like breathing me out and from that time I started pestering more elders this happened this happened and the Navajos gave me a story it's too long to get into but I think it's in the book about white shell changing woman and white shell changing woman is a woman who sees the earth burning up from too much solar energy too much male energy like now but the old time stories don't go past, present, future. They can be any time, which is why they're so cool, right? So according to the Navajo story, white shell changing woman goes on a fast. She wants to heal the, bring rain for her people and heal the earth. And she gets direction. She takes her twin boys. They go to the West Coast. They're walking. They're under strict sacred law, tab, uh, kapu or tabu. And one violates it. He gets to the water and he says, you guys got to put me in the water because I'm changing. And he changes into this big sea spirit, this lizard, this great lizard spirit. So, um, and they sail, she sails with the help of local native people on the ocean. She sails to the island farthest west. And when, um, when she got there, her promise to the Navajo people is that she would always send life-giving rains back from this place, right? Okay, you guys, imagine my surprise when I arrived on Maui with a good height of friend, Dorothy Grant Davidson, and 
she takes me to meet somebody that's a friend of she and her husband at the time, Robert Davidson, your carver from there. And she drives me up here and I get this feeling. I say, oh my God, it's like that vision of the lizard eating me or and breathing me in or whatever. And sure enough, I get here and it's it turned out I was meeting my husband, Keola, who just walked in when we were talking earlier. And the house that I'm at is on the site of an old pond. And at that pond, in traditional times, like 100 years ago or 90 years ago, Hawaiians would do a ceremony and this 34-foot black lizard would become manifest. And that lizard was cared for by a woman named Alice Shaw. She was the last in a lineage of practitioners. And my husband actually knew her when he was a boy. She was his, she was his grandma's friend. So that petroglyph in learning my ABCs, look what it did to me. And the other thing is those petroglyphs off to the coast, it isn't just like one rock, one teaching. That petroglyph is connected with all the other hundred or more that are there. It's so sophisticated that like when the tide comes over these rocks and then it goes out, it reveals images that you can't see because there's erosion and so forth, but also that you are probably never meant to see because tides are so complex and, and there's always, they come up at different rates of speed and they come up at different times and some tides you don't get for many, many years. So off the BC coast and Southeast Alaska, if people want to voyage and sail, you cannot just look up at the stars and navigate because you can't see the stars, right? But these printouts in this tideline can tell you what you need to know. And I didn't know it at the time, but I helped to rediscover all of that, to, to archive all of that, and in that way, give something back. And I'm still trying to give something back by telling the story to you too, because that lizard is the spirit of conception. That lizard is the spirit of creation. The lizard in the water is the fetus in the womb, right? And now to your story. Okay, you guys, I was anticipating, I was anticipating Ross might ask me this. So it's in the book, but I want to tell you what Hanson Ashley told me once. Like, so why you bother with all this, with these rocks and it's going back and your lineage and all of that? Okay. Check this out. People who are recognized as native people, indigenous people around the planet constitute 5% of the population. And yet we are responsible for 85% of the world's biodiversity. So the answer to your earlier question, Ross, like why this big loss of identity, especially for, for people of European descent is obvious. You wipe out the identity, you can steal the land, you do anything you want, right? But here we are, for the few that kept that identity, the 5%, 85% of the world's biodiversity. So pretty good if we all get back to that, huh? Anyway, here's what Hanson Ashley said to me. He said, like I said, for my own family, so much loss, both of our identities. And he said, when you're out of balance, 
you need to go back to the creation story of your people. At that place of creation emergence, you put yourself in balance and from that place of creation, tell your story in a new balanced way. And this is the indigenous formula for renewal and life always does renew when we remember who we are and give thanks by remembering. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have some questions from our, our live community here. Is it okay if we get to those? Sure. Okay. Um, there's a question from Ilona who says, can you comment on working and walking with the ancestors when you don't live on your ancestral land anymore? I can because I'm doing that in Hawaii. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I have this, I have my story that connects me here. It, can, it, it just, it absolutely blew my Western mind. And I think my indigenous mind too, when I arrived here and found out that the petroglyph off the BC coast and the story, that story, and then the Navajo story connected like this to this story here. These stories, when you remember, even if you only have a bit and piece, bits and tiny pieces of fairy tales from your culture, hold on to it. It's a treasure and it's a clue. And sooner or later, you're going to find where the pieces start to fit with it, right? Um, even Mother Goose, when I was in West Africa, I think it's in the book too, mm -hmm. I had an experience with something about a society having to do with swans and that swan brought me into, yeah, see, there's a, there's a swan, there's a swan right here behind me because that swan story brought me back. It was not just mother goose was all that was left the whole corpus of knowledge about the swan and Cygnus, the constellation and the black hole where, where the source of all movement in the universe emanates from, which is the gift of the creator and creatress to European tribal people, the gift of fire, right? And we need to take care of it again. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm, walking, I'm walking that now because my story brought me here. My traditional stories and ceremony brought me here. And from being here, I and then, well, what am I doing here, right? What's, what am I doing? And then it turned out that from this place, one of the places of creation and emergence, by being here, I was led to develop the um, world's only advanced degree program in indigenous science. And, and it's now at the university, the United Nations University for Peace in Costa Rica. And it's, um, um, it's also distance learning. So the program is set up to provide a crucible for people as a collectivity to remember who we are, to remember our indigenous way of thinking, of being, to be connected with other people, and then to have it grounded in environmental studies and United Nations diplomacy. So being here, like how do you walk? How do you walk with it? The best way is just what I'm saying, know who you are deeply and you will see how you're connected. 
and make an offering. Go to a tree that's near, that's close to the kind, as close to the sacred tree of your own people as possible. Make an offering and ask, say what you want to do, that you want to be able to know how to walk this way and ask for help. And then watch the dreams that come, watch the synchronicities that happen. And, and also remember, if you haven't been in touch this way, apologize. And when you get the help, say thank you. So I was telling Ross before we started, I said, okay, we'll do an opening prayer here. But before we close, since I've called the ancestors, I need to have a moment to say thank you for helping us. So like that. Thank you. We've got, about, we've got about <laughs> nine more minutes left and I, we've got some more questions rolling in from our, our live um, community. Um, here's one from Lindsay who says, Hi, Apila, lovely to see you. The world right now seems to be full of vast crowds of refugees who have nowhere to go and few countries which will accept them. All of them, especially their children, have been ripped from their past and their homelands and have unknown futures. What wisdom can you offer on how all of these displaced people can find wholeness and a sense of home? Well, of course, there's practical things we each can do. Lift a hand to help. Give money. Take blankets. Take food. Whatever you can do, there's that. But my life's calling is to say that the best way to help is those displaced people. That's all of us. I bet almost everybody, everybody on this call has been displaced from homelands one way or the other. Claim that power back so it becomes the norm instead of the exception. And when we know who we are, then we see how we are related to everyone else. And we don't do horrific things like set masses of people homeless running about the earth with nowhere to go. Thank you. Thank you. There's a question about, about your, um, your programs of study from Kathleen. Uh, you just mentioned the school. Uh, now you, you told me it's the new forever home for your Indigenous Mind program <laughs> and with the UN school in, in uh, Costa Rica. Yeah. Kathleen asks, what is the status of APILA accepting master's or PhD candidates in her Indigenous Science and Peace Studies program? Has anyone studied Indigenous ways of death and dying to contribute to broad society? Um. We were, ex we, were, we were accepting students in the fall, but because of the pandemic, we said we're going to wait until January. Um, so in January, we're admitting people for the master's. The PhD will be a bit later. We have to have a build of a year or two with the master's first. And I, we've done the PhD before um, at another university, so we can do it, but we need to, we need to come into it in a, in a good, calm way, right? And then as far as studies of death, um, it's a synchronous question, um, yes. 
yes, I know a couple of people, a, a Maori friend, um, a practice, cultural practitioner has studied it and other, other people here in Hawaii as well. Um, and I myself am working with a number of sacred sites here connected to that pond that take you on the confrontation with death and a choice for um, going on to the invisible world or staying in this world. So, yeah, I do. You can, I guess, um, people Is could. Is website they can go to? Yeah, yeah I'm just wondering. Um, you can write to me, appeal at wisdom.org. I'll get it. Apila at? W-I-S-N dot oh, org. Okay, awesome. We'll get Jacob to throw that up in the in the chat for people as well. Um, Apila, uh, there's, I think we have time. Let me just check the time here. Yeah, we've got time for one more question. This is from Sylvia, who says, as a Canadian First Nations and Italian, how to create harmony within this divide? I think the, <clears throat> I can't give an easy answer for that, except what I can say is there are some points of contradiction that can't be resolved. It just can't. And it's the teachings of that great lizard spirit is escape non-binary thinking and let the contradictions stand. Even though they can't possibly both be true, you just let it be. And as you let it be, you come into that, that lokahi, as Hawaiians say, or the harmony, the overtone, where spirit comes in. You can't resolve it through confrontation. It won't work. This won't work. And the other thing is know deeply who you are on both sides. You fall in love with yourself. There's a point in the book where some, Dorothy, the woman who helped me most with my Oneida heritage, um, uh, Oneida matriarch, and she was, oh, she's always good. She has a snappy answer, you know, and brave, courageous woman. And um, a colleague of mine said, geez, you know, students are saying to me, um, they're American now. What difference does it make where they came from? They're from the Sacramento River now or Calgary or whatever. So what, do you, what do you answer them? So I said, well, when we pick up Dorothy, you can ask her. She just came off a long flight. She might be tired, but we'll put her to the test. So when we meet Dorothy, I said, Dorothy, Kimmy has a question for you. And Kim asks her, what do you say to people who say it doesn't matter where I come from? I'm Canadian now or I'm American now. And she says, you tell them, if you, if you love this land, wait until you see your own. And that was my experience with France. Something just came up through me, just like love. I had that same feeling at Oneida. So is it either or, even though it's also is either and or, <laughs> that, that's the teachings. <laughs> A 
Apila, thank you so much. And we've got some, uh, just some thanks coming in from people. Adelheid says, no question, but thank you, Apila, so much for your presentation and congratulations oh. on the completion of your book. I will order it soon, hopefully at banyan.com. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Hi. be in touch. Chinan, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And then Heidi says, I'm so thrilled with your story. It is a real treasure we can all learn from. Thank you so much. Wow. And Kathleen, who asked about the program of study, she says, thanks so much for asking, Ross. I'm going to apply in January. I'm so excited. <laughs> Gratitude. Yeah, good. So as always, uh, thank you to everyone in the Banyan community for showing up live and those who watch or listen to the recording. Thank you to everyone who works in the shop at Banyan Books from the front of house to everybody in the back, shipping and receiving and all the purchasers. And uh, um, of course, to Jacob Steele, our podcast producer and the man responsible for all of the free programming and amazing events that Banyan puts on. Thanks to him. Um, and of course, to our guest today, Dr. Apila Colorado, thank you. And I'll pass over to you to have the final word with a closing prayer. Thank you.